title, Pursuit, we're looking at that man whose heart is a heart after God. And this idea of being after God, this idea of pursuit and chasing after something. It's not the man who's perfect in all his ways, as we'll see today, but it's the man whose heart desires the things of God's heart and who desires to be one with the heart of God. And that's what we're looking at, and that's what we're looking at pursuing today. We're going to begin in 1 Samuel chapter 15. Uh, we're going to pick back up with a story that we looked at last week in chapter 15 verse 12, we're going to recap this, and then we're going to uh, talk about it in, in a different light, look at a few different things about this story before we get over into 2 Samuel this morning. So begin reading with me in 1 Samuel chapter 15 and verse 12. Early in the morning, Samuel got up to confront Saul, but it was reported to Samuel, Saul went to Carmel, where he set up a monument for himself. Then he turned around and went to Gilgal, and Samuel said to him, Saul, or Samuel came to him and Saul said, may the Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. Samuel replied, Then what is the sound of sheep and cattle that I hear? Saul answered, The troops brought them from the Amalekites and spared the best sheep and cattle in order to sacrifice to the Lord your God. But the rest we destroyed. Stop, exclaimed Samuel. Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Tell me, Saul replied. Samuel continued, Although you once considered yourself unimportant, have you not become the leader of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and then he sent you on a mission and said, Go and completely destroy the sinful Amalekites. Fight against them until you've annihilated them. So why didn't you obey the Lord? Why did you rush on the plunder and do what was evil in the Lord's sight? But I did obey the Lord, Saul answered. I went on the mission the Lord gave me. I brought back Agag, king of Amalek, and I completely destroyed the Amalekites. The troops took sheep and cattle from the plunder, the best of what was set apart for destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. Then Samuel said, Does the Lord take pleasure in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? Look, to obey is better than sacrifice. To pay attention is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination, and defiance is like wickedness and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. Saul answered Samuel, I have sinned. I have transgressed the Lord's command in your words. Because I was afraid of the people, I obeyed them. Now, therefore, please forgive my sin and return with me so I can worship the Lord. Samuel replied to Saul, I will not return with you because you rejected the word of the Lord. The Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. When Samuel turned to go, Saul grabbed the hem of his robe and it tore. Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingship of Israel away from you today and has given it to your neighbor who is better than you. Furthermore, the eternal one of Israel does not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man who changes his mind. Saul said, I have sinned. Please honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel. Come back with me so I can bow down and worship the Lord your God. We talked about this incident a little bit last week as we began to look at the heart of obedience and what it means to truly obey. But what happens when we don't obey? What happens when we go our own route? What happens whenever we sin? And that's what we want to look at today, this idea of dealing with with sin. How do we deal with sin? And just as we did last week where we look at Saul and David and contrast their response to these different things. Last week we looked at how Saul did not obey and how David did obey. Today we're going to look at how Saul dealt with sin and how David deals with his sin. And we're going to see in there, in this contrast, how it is that we become a person who is after the heart of God. Someone who's pursuing the things that God is passionate about. So let's first begin by looking at Saul and looking at how he chose to deal with sin. And, and in his dealings with sin, we can see that there are at least seven 
But we're going to throw in an eighth way of dealing with our sin. And these are things that we commonly do. Maybe we don't just do one. Maybe we do more than one. In fact, we're going to see that Saul does all seven of these things in dealing with his sin. But he never gets around to the eighth. The first of that is being we glory in it. Look in verse 12. Samuel gets up to go and find Saul. He's going to confront Saul with his sin, and he's told that Saul has gone up and erected a monument for himself. If you'll remember, he was supposed to completely destroy the Amalekites and leave nothing. But instead, he chose to spare the king and the best of what was available. He said he only destroyed the detestable things. But he has completely convinced himself that he has done what God wanted him to do. And he's gotten this great victory. So he goes and he builds a monument to his victory. A monument to his success. And we find ourselves in that position. We find ourselves doing these things in our lives. Either things that we're called not to do or we don't do the things that we're supposed to do. And we see our lives and we see things happening and we see that we're having success as far as the world's standards are concerned. We see that our wallet's getting fatter. We see that dollar amount in the checking account beginning to climb. We, we find that this year we're able to take the family on that vacation we've really always wanted to take them on. But the thing that we don't understand is this, we're doing so in spite of the Lord's commands. We're reveling in our disobedience. We're reveling in our, in our sin. And we're glorifying what it is that we're doing. How do we glorify sin? Well, we see as Saul goes in, he justifies it. He justifies it. Look at his greeting to Samuel whenever Samuel arrives. When Samuel gets there, Saul says, May the Lord bless you. I've carried out the Lord's instructions. How could he honestly look at the prophet of God and say, I've carried out the Lord's instructions? Because in his mind, he has. He has justified everything that he's done. He's come up with a good reason for doing what he's done. In fact, he's now gotten to the point, notice it never mentions earlier in the chapter that the reason they spared the best of these things was to make a sacrifice. No, that is the justification that he's now come up with. I'm bringing back this prisoner of war to show how powerful God is to all the people. And I'm bringing back the best of all the spoil. We're going to dedicate it to the Lord and sacrifice it to Him for giving us this great victory. See, He's justified these things in His mind. And we do that in our lives. This is why it's okay for me to behave this way. I know God said not to do this, but in this instance, here's why it would be okay. Here's why God would say it's fine, because it it suits the end that God is really about. It's okay for me to lie in this instance, because I'm lying for the greater good. It's okay for me to hold this back this time and not give it like God's told me to, because I know God's wanting to provide this in my life, or He's wanting to do this in my life, and that's the only way I can foresee that God can do it. See, we come up with all sorts of reasons why our behavior is okay. And why God would allow us to bend the rules or change the instructions. Or why God's going to give us a free pass this time. Because I meant well. I did what was wrong, but I meant well in doing it. So God's going to excuse it away. And that's what Saul tries to do with his actions. But then, when he's called out on it, Saul tries to pass the blame. Notice what he says. The troops brought them back. And then a little bit later, he echoes it again. He completely destroyed everyone. He spared Agag to bring him back as a prisoner of war. But the troops took what was best. 
We see this all the way back in Genesis, don't we? How did Adam and Eve respond? Well, they tried to pass the blame, didn't they? They tried to pass the blame. The justification came from the serpent, right? As he was tempting Eve, letting her justify in her mind what God really said. Would God really do this? And then, whenever they were called out on it, they tried to pass the blame on. Adam said, oh, it was this woman that you gave me. The woman said, oh, it was the serpent that you allowed into the garden. See, they're always passing the buck. And that's what we try to do. God, I wouldn't have fallen if you wouldn't have allowed this temptation in my life. God, I wouldn't have had to have done this. I wouldn't have had to resort to my own plans and my own measures if you would have provided. See, we're always trying to pass the blame. The devil made me do it, right? We, we, we adopt that mentality. It's never our fault. We're always looking for someone else to shift the blame for our sin to. But then he goes on and he starts making excuses. Samuel's not buying any of this. And so we get down into verse 24. Saul finally says, I have sinned. I have transgressed the Lord's command and your words. Why? Because I was afraid of the people. So I obeyed them. See, we've got an excuse. We've got an excuse. Yes, I did it, but. I know I shouldn't have, but. We've always got this excuse. Instead of just dealing with the sin, instead of just coming to terms and coming to grips with it, we want to excuse it away. There's a reason. There's some prevailing circumstance. There's some stress that we were under. I haven't been sleeping well, so I've just not been in my right mind. Well, I was hangry. I didn't have lunch and dinner's late, and so I said those things. But we've always got some kind of excuse, don't we? And culture is more than willing to give us any number of excuses that we need. We've got an excuse for everything. Because everything is caused by something else. I can't be held accountable for what I did because. Yes, I did it, but I shouldn't be responsible because. We've always got an excuse. And Saul had his excuses. But Saul goes another step. He downplays the severity of the sin. Notice, notice what he says here as he's talking to Samuel. He goes to apologize, but he never asks for forgiveness from the Lord. No, instead, who does he ask forgiveness from? Look at 25. It says, now therefore, please forgive my sin. Speaking to Samuel, please forgive my sin and return with me so I can worship the Lord. He never once asks God for forgiveness. He never once seeks restoration from God. Instead, he seeks Samuel's forgiveness. Because now in Saul's mind, when he's sinned, when he's transgressed these instructions, he's transgressed what Samuel told him to do. His sin is not a personal offense to God. He hasn't sinned against God. No, he sinned against his neighbor. And see, whenever we can look at sin as something that I've done to someone else, it's a little less severe, isn't it? Because when I'm looking to other people, then I'm also comparing what I've done to what they've done to me. Or what someone else has done to me. Or what I've seen someone else do to them. And so what I did is not nearly as bad as what they did. And it's not an offense against God. It's just an offense against a person. And this person should forgive me because the Bible says to forgive, right? And so whatever I've done, you should forgive me as long as I say that I'm sorry. You should forgive me if I feel bad for hurting you. And never once do we stop to consider who we've really offended. What sin really is. 
See, sin is whenever we do something that's against the very nature of who God is. It is personally offensive to Him. Because we're acting out directly against who He is. Everything that He is and everything that He stands for. And yet, Saul doesn't realize that. He's asking Samuel to forgive him because he sinned against Samuel by not listening to his instruction. And by trying to pull one over on him. But Saul doesn't stop there. He goes to the sixth thing. He finally admits to his sin, but he never repents. Look in verse 30. Samuel calls him out on it again and tells him that God is not going to change his mind, that he's taken the kingship from him. And in verse 30, Saul says, I have sinned. But please now honor me before the elders of my people and before Israel. Yes, he admits he sinned, and he admits he's now sinned against God, but what does he not do? You see, Samuel has to remind him that it's not me who's taking the kingship from you. It's not me who put an end to your dynasty. Just as you grabbed the hem of my garment and it tore, God is tearing the throne out of your hand. You don't need my forgiveness, you need his. And so Saul says, you're right, I've sinned against God. But that's it. There's no repentance. And too many times I think this is where we stop. Too many times I think this is the type of forgiveness and salvation that if we're not careful, we're calling people to. We want them to realize that they have sinned against God. We want them to realize that God has made a way to offer forgiveness for their sin, but that's it. They realize they're sinners. They realize that they are wrong. They realize they're in need of a Savior, but that's it. There's never that next step of repentance. There's there's never that next step. There's never any true change. There's never any true remorse for offending God. There's no desire to do something about that and make it right. Because that would mean that they would have to change. And instead, we just want to admit we were wrong and continue to carry on and have everything be okay. And we're afraid that if we actually take that next step, then we're admitting to everyone that there's something wrong with us. And so what do we do? This is step number seven that we see Saul get to. He goes to hide it. He tries to hide his sin. Notice what he's concerned about. And notice what he says to Samuel. I have sinned, but now please honor me still before my people and come back with me so that I can bow down and fake worship to a God that I don't really serve. I've got to keep up appearances. I've got to hide who I really am. I've got to hide my sin. I I know that you've said that God has torn the kingdom out from my hand and given it to my neighbor who's better than me, but I don't need everyone else to know that. I'm still on the throne right now. What would everyone think if they knew that God had taken the kingship from me? What position would that leave me in? See, I need to hide my sin. If I have to admit that I'm wrong, if I have to ask for forgiveness, if I have to change something about that, about myself and what I've done, if I have to change the way I'm doing things, if I have to get with somebody and find some accountability, or if I need some help in dealing with this sin that's in my life, then what is everyone going to think? If God is prompting me to come and repent of my sin and deal with Him, what, what are people going to think? 
I've got a reputation to uphold. I mean, what if they think their Sunday school teacher is perfect and has never done anything wrong, and I have to admit that I've sinned? They're not going to want me as a Sunday school teacher anymore. That's going to invalidate everything that I've ever taught them, and they're not going to listen to anything else that I have to say. What's that going to do to my ministry? What's that going to do to this position that God has put me in? No, I have to protect that above all else. So I'm going to hide it. I'm going to sweep it under the rug. I'm going to put on a happy face. I know things aren't going well at home, and I know things aren't right there, and I know there's strife and some things that need to be dealt with, but if we actually go to anybody and get help, then what are they going to think? Yeah, I'm involved with this ministry at the church, or I'm involved with that ministry at the church, or I'm involved with this small group or that small group, and if I go to the pastor and tell him that we've got some issues and we need to get some things taken care of and we need to deal with some things and we need some help, they're liable to remove me from that. What, what would my neighbors think? Or what would my family think? So we're just going to hide our sin. And it's not that we don't know we don't need to deal with it. We're just afraid of what's going to happen if we do deal with it. So we hide it. We see that all the way back in Genesis, don't we? What did Adam and Eve do whenever they heard God coming in the garden? They hid. And they tried to make clothing of leaves, right, to cover their shame. They tried to take care of it themselves. They tried to put it on a good face as if nobody would notice. As if the God who created them and knew them better than they knew themselves wouldn't realize that there was something wrong. But no, they tried to hide it. And that's what Saul's trying to do. Samuel, I understand what you've just said, but you've got to help me keep up a good appearance. You've got to help me keep the status quo. Really, there's an eighth way to deal with sin, but it's something that Saul was not willing to do, and that's this, repent. Repent. Repent isn't just an admission that there is something wrong. Repentance involves a 180-degree change. Repentance is saying, yes, there is something wrong. Yes, there is something wrong with the status quo. Yes, there is something wrong with the way that I'm going. And it has to change. So right now, I'm turning and I'm going completely the opposite direction. Instead of following the way that I'm going, the way that I see best, instead of following my plan, I'm turning to God and His way and His plan. And it's diametrically opposed to everything that I think. That's repentance. That's repentance. Forsaking everything that I've got going this way for his way. For what he says. It's not just agreeing with him. But it's following him completely in what he says. But Saul is not willing. And I wonder how many of us are. We, we want to say we're following him with our whole life, right? We want to come to that salvation moment and say, God, I realize that my life as a whole is not going in the right direction, so I want to repent and give you my life as a whole. That's what we think. But the reality is we're saying, God, I realize my life is a mess, and I realize my life as a whole is not going the way that you called me to go, and I'm not living the way that you called me to live, so I'm going to give you my whole life except for this part and this part and this part, and I'm going to keep that myself. And in reality, we're not going 180 degrees. We've not really repented. we said, God, there are some things that I'm willing to give up for you, but there are other things that I'm going to hold on to. That's not repentance. And that's what we need. That's what we need. So what are the consequences of not repenting? 
Why, why would we want to hold on to those things? What's at risk if we're not willing to give God 100% and truly go to him for repentance? Well, as we look through what God has done to Saul, we see a few things here in chapter 15. First of all, Saul needed to understand these three passages that you see on the screen. Numbers 32.23 says, our sin will find us out. Galatians 6.7 says, do not be deceived, God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. Then we get into Proverbs 28.13. It says, the man who tries to cover or hide his sin will not prosper. See, we have to understand that. We have to understand that there are consequences for not repenting. Those things are going to come to light. Those things are going to play out in our lives. While we think we're seeing some success and we think we're getting away with things for a period of time, God says they are going to come to light. And you will not ultimately succeed. We see in Saul's life, his his legacy is altered. The plan that God had for him when he was chosen to be king of Israel is completely and radically changed. His first step of disobedience, not only did God say you're not going to have a legacy established, you're you're not going to have a dynasty, your sons will not sit on the throne, but that wasn't enough that he disobeys again a second time in a very public way and God says, all right, the kingship is being taken from you now. His legacy is completely altered and completely changed because of his refusal to repent. His fellowship is broken. His fellowship with God. If you remember when God chose him to be king, his anointing, the Spirit of God came on him in a very special way. And the Bible is very clear. Our sin separates between us and our God. We cannot hold on to sin. We cannot hold on to these things in our life that we're not willing to repent of, that we're not willing to turn from and expect that our relationship with God is going to be what he intended it to be and what we desire for it to be. He cannot work and move and act in our lives in the way that he wants to. We cannot experience that abundant life that he created us to experience in him whenever there is sin that we are not willing to repent of in our lives. It has to be taken care of. We see in Saul this discipline and conviction. It says, from the time that the Spirit of God was taken from him and that fellowship was broken, it said God sent a spirit to torment Saul. That word torment is interesting because it wasn't just there just as a punishment, just to torture Saul. But why do we feel that torture? Why do we feel that angst inside? Why why do we feel so at odds with ourselves at times? What is God doing? He's disciplining us to open our eyes to our sin, and he's convicting us. He's making us miserable to the point that we're willing to do something about the sin problem. He's calling us to him. He's not driving us away. He's not putting a wedge in there to split us further and further from him. Our sin has already separated us from him. There's no more wedge needed. Instead, God is convicting us. He's making us miserable. He's letting us face the true nature of our sin and our rebellion and our unrepentance. 
so that it will wake us up and make us desire to do something about it. Have you ever gotten a little something in your shoe? But you're in the middle of a walk and there's not a good place to sit down. There's not a good place to stop. So you try to tell yourself you're going to get it whenever you get to where you're going. You're just going to ignore it for now. And you do that thing where you kind of shake it around between every couple steps. Try to get it in a spot where it's a little bit more bearable. Right? If you could just get it up between your toes, maybe in that cavity right there, you wouldn't feel it as much. But inevitably, where does that thing wind up? It's right under the ball of your foot or right in your heel, right? Where you are going to feel it the most and it's going to bring the greatest amount of pain. And finally, what do you have to do? Convenient or not, no matter where you are, you're going to stop where you're at and take that shoe off and get that thing out of there. And that's what God is doing to Saul. That's what God is trying to bring about. You say, Well, how do you know? Because the Bible is very clear. It says God's not willing that any should perish, but all should come to what? All should come to what? The knowledge of God, repentance, understanding of who he is, and agreement with him in that. God is trying to bring us all to that place. And so when we don't repent, there is this discipline, this conviction, this torment, this angst, this inner turmoil that's going on. Everyone else might be fooled. We might have done a great job of hiding it, and everyone else thinks everything's okay. But we know it's not. And that causes Saul to go into this sin spiral. And we see this in our lives. When we don't confess sin, when we don't deal with sin, when we don't repent of these things that are in our lives, we see ourselves go down this spiral. And it's like any spiral you've ever seen. It starts out small at first, right? But what happens? The longer you go around the spiral, the bigger and bigger and bigger things become. And it's that way with Saul. The, the first step in this sin spiral that we see is this paranoia and this fear that begins to take over him. Everyone's out to get him. Everyone's conspiring against him, especially David. And every little victory that David has, Saul can't be happy and elated with the victory that Israel has had as a nation because of David. No, he's paranoid about what's going to happen to him. It makes him fearful about what people are thinking about him and what people are plotting about him. What could David do with this type of uh, success and fame and fortune and power that he's getting? What could David do with this adulation that he's receiving from the other Israelites? And Paul begins, or Saul begins to grow fearful. He said, well, you said this was a sin spiral. Well, what is fear? Fear is a lack of faith in God, which is sin. The Bible's very clear. We might not think it's much, right? Those first rings of that spiral don't ever seem like that much. But we begin to spiral down and down, further and further. And as this fear and this paranoia takes over Saul, it begins to grow and to grow and to grow until we see him get to this point where to do something about these fears that he has. He begins to be very conniving, a very scheming person. We see him send David out thinking everything's okay to go home to his wife and yet he sends his men to go and wait outside the house until David and his wife are sleeping to go in and take David's life. We see him plotting and plotting and scheming and scheming over and over and over again seeking out David's location so that he can send his men out into the wilderness to find him and deal with him there. 
And then finally, we see the strife began to grow even amongst those who are closest to him, including his own son, Jonathan. Who saw us so paranoid that Jonathan is in cahoots with David, his sworn enemy now, the man that he fears the most, that he's even to the point where he's enraged with his son to where he picks up a spear and hurls it at his own son. Whether he intends to take his life, whether he realizes what he's doing, or whether he's just in a blind rage, it doesn't matter. It's causing strife within the family. It's called strife between him and his daughter who's married to David. It's called strife between him and his son Jonathan. It's interrupting the relationships all around him. And he doesn't even see it. He doesn't even see it. But this lack of repentance and the spiral that he's in causes him to lose it all. And finally, it leads him to gross sin. We see him send for the priest in Nob. And whenever they're brought to him, he kills the priest for aiding David. And then he sends his soldiers to the village of Nob to go and to slaughter everyone who's related to these priests. Then we see him consorting with the witch at Endor looking for guidance because he's so desperate to hear what God wants him to do. He's so desperate to find success that he's willing to consult anywhere with anyone trying to find this wisdom. And ultimately, this lack of repentance leads to separation eternally. Not only did it interrupt his fellowship with God while he was here on this earth, but ultimately is going to lead to his separation for eternity because of his lack of repentance. So what do we see then in David? If you'll turn quickly this morning to 2 Samuel chapter 11, we see the account of David and Bathsheba. I know you're familiar with this story, so we're going to recap as we go through, but we'll be referring to a couple of things here. Number one, David wasn't where God wanted him to be. It was the time of the year. And notice the Bible is very clear to spell this out for us. If this wasn't a big deal, this wouldn't be recorded here and repeated. But it was the time of year when kings march out to war. But notice what it says at the end of verse 1. But David remained in Jerusalem. David was not where God wanted him to be. He wasn't where God was working. He was alone, without accountability, outside of the center of God's will. He saw what he shouldn't see. He didn't go looking for it. We don't go looking for temptation. The temptation's all around. And he saw what he shouldn't see. But what do we do whenever we're faced with temptation? Well, in Genesis 39, Joseph gives us a great example whenever he flees temptation, right? But that's not what David did. David did not flee temptation. David not only continued to look, but David began to think about what he saw. And not only did he begin to think about what he saw, but he began to inquire about it. It wasn't just that that ad popped up on his computer screen. It wasn't just that he opened an email he shouldn't have opened. No, he started typing things into his search browser. He started looking on the places in the social media accounts where he knew that he would see some things. David began to inquire. 
about Bathsheba, this woman that he saw. And when he finds out who she is, he finds out not only is she married, but she's the granddaughter of his most trusted advisor, Ahithophel. So now he has a name to go with his face, and he knows exactly who she is, and he knows her station in life. He knows that she is off limits for more than one reason. But it didn't matter. David sent for her. David is literally asking for it. So he has Bathsheba brought. David's forgotten about these principles that our sin will find us out because guess what? She's pregnant. So David is confronted with the fruit of his sin. What is he going to do? What is he going to do? He hasn't made repentance up to this point, and now he finds out that she's pregnant. How is he going to deal with this? How is he going to handle it? Is he going to do the right thing, or is he going to resort to one of these seven other things that we've seen so far that we do oftentimes whenever it comes to dealing with sin? David ends up in a sin spiral. First, there's the adultery. And then when he finds out that she's pregnant, his pride gets in the way. He can't let this reputation be destroyed. He he can't let people in the kingdom find out. What would people think if the chosen man of God, if the man after God's own heart is caught up in adultery? Caught up in sin. Open and blatant sin. How would the people respond? How would God make good on the promises that he's made to David? How, how How would David not be treated any differently than Saul? So what does David do? He resorts to deceit. He has her husband brought home from war. He's going to make it look like it's not his kid. And then he lies to her husband trying to make sure that things go as he's hoping they're going to go. Making sure things happen that he hopes happens. And it doesn't. So what does he do? He lies straight to his face and he hands him a message to his commanding officer. He gives him his own death sentence, unbeknownst to him, to carry back to his commanding officer. And so that deceit plays out, and it leads to murder. In fact, God calls it exactly that, and he tells David, you use the sword of the Ammonites to murder this man. In God's eyes, that's exactly what it is. And so David resorts to more deceit. As soon as he can, he brings Bathsheba in to marry her. Try to keep up appearances. Try to, try to minimize the amount of time that passes so maybe people won't get confused. Maybe people won't ask too many questions. Maybe people will just assume some things and let them go. But David's dealing with all of this with deceit. And this spiral of one unconfessed sin just leads to more and more and more and to more. So God confronts David. God confronts David because David is hiding his sin. It's been nine months that David's been hiding this sin. No repentance. No dealing with it. At least not in constructive ways. But God is convicting him. If you look at Psalm chapter 32, you don't have to turn, but I want to read this very briefly to you here. David's description of what it's like for God to be convicting him. In verse 3, he says, When I kept silent, my bones became brittle from my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was drained as in the summer's heat. God is working on him this entire time, but David still 
would not confess and repent of his sin. So God does what he does with Saul, and he sends a prophet to confront David about his sin. This time it's a prophet by the name of Nathan. Nathan's a very clever guy. He uses a very uh, neat story about a neighbor and some sheep. What was David before he was king? A shepherd. He knows right where to hit David and how to get to his heart. And so he confronts David with this sin through this story about this man and his prized sheep and a wealthy neighbor who comes and takes it from him. And David finally, finally admits and finally confesses that he has sinned against the Lord. Look in Second Samuel chapter 12, verse 13. We see David's confession. It's very simple. David responded to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. That was it. That was it. But in this confession, we see it's very genuine. Do you see any excuses here? Do you see David passing the blame? Do you see David trying to wiggle out of any consequences or anything that his sin is going to bring? No. And, and it's properly directed. Notice what David says. I have sinned against who? Did he sin against Nathan? Was he asking for Nathan's forgiveness? No. He says, I have sinned against the Lord. He understands who he sinned against. It's not Uriah. It's not Nathan. It's not Bathsheba. The main concern here is he has sinned against God. And it's humble. It's humble. He's not worried about reputation. He's not worried about how he's going to look. Never once does he give any thought to what the people were going to think. He realizes at this point that he has sinned, and whatever happens because of his sin, whatever consequences come, he completely deserves. In fact, according to the letter of the law, David deserves to die twice. Once because he's an adulterer, and that was the punishment for adultery. And two, because he was responsible for premeditated murder. And the Bible is very clear, that person is not to be pardoned. David deserved to die twice. He was willing to take whatever consequences God was pronouncing. He was very humble in that. But we see something else with this confession. We see that it's effective. Notice Nathan's reply. The Lord has taken away your sin. You will not die. It's effective. The Bible is very clear that a broken and a contrite heart are what God is seeking. That's what God desires. And a broken and a contrite heart is where God chooses to grant his forgiveness. When we come to him broken, when we come to him truly sorry, when we come to him repentant, when we come to him ready to change and turn from doing things our way, when we recognize the severity of our sin and who we've sinned against, then it says God is willing to forgive. So it's effective. Does that mean David just gets off scot-free? No, there, there are consequences. There are consequences to sin. We we've, might have received forgiveness, but that doesn't mean that God is going to wipe out the consequences of our sin and the things that we've brought on ourselves and the situations that we've created. It says he, he'll help us through them. He'll help us deal with them, but it doesn't mean we get through consequence free. In fact, Nathan tells him, because you treated the Lord with such contempt in this matter, the son born to you will die. This child that Bathsheba has just had is going to die. 
But you know what? God is still going to make good on his promise that he had made to David years before. When David desired to build a temple for the Lord, God said, it won't be you who builds it. But what you're desiring is not a bad thing. And I'm appreciative of where your heart is at and where your attitude is at. But you're a man of war. You're not going to build my temple, but you are going to have a son. And I'm going to establish a dynasty through that son. That son is going to sit on the throne. He says, I'll be like a father to him and he'll be like my son. And I'll correct him with a rod when he needs correcting. He says, but my love will never depart from him. When that next son is born to David and Bathsheba, they call him Solomon. But when Nathan comes to bless him, he gives him a name. Jedediah, which means, anybody know? Beloved of the Lord. God still made good on the promise. See, David had sinned and there were consequences to his sin, but that didn't mean his life was ruined and he could never amount to anything and could never do again what God had desired for him to do. But it meant he was going to carry the weight of his sin. David, whenever he's given this analogy and this little story about this neighbor who had taken this poor man's sheep and slaughtered it for a feast for this friend who comes from out of town. David says that man must be killed and he must repay this man fourfold. Consequently, in David's life, David lost four sons. The sin that he had committed was repaid fourfold. There were consequences to his sin. But that didn't mean the end. It didn't mean he was beyond God still using and God still restoring. In fact, the heart of true repentance says this. And if you look in Psalm 51, you see David's prayer. You see David's confession in Psalm 51. And it breaks down into these three parts. I challenge you, go home and read this. You want to see what the heart of repentance really looks like? David says, purge me. Then he begs God to restore him into that relationship. And then he asked God to use him. He says, please don't take your spirit away from me. Why would he say that? What had God done with Saul? When Saul was unrepentant, God's spirit was taken from him. God's work in Saul's life was done without repentance. David's saying, please, please, I realize the weight of my sin. I realize what I've done. God, I'm going to change God, I've sinned against you. I need your forgiveness. I need you to cleanse me from my sin. I need you to restore me into relationship with you. And God, I beg you, please continue to use me. As you go look at Psalm 32 again and go down to the end of Psalm 32, after David talks about what it was like to be under conviction of the Lord, he talks about receiving God's forgiveness. And he says, from now on, he's going to teach other people, right, to ask of the Lord. Notice, what he says here toward the end of this. He says, I acknowledge my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. David said, the biggest thing God I've learned is this and use me, use me to accomplish this, to teach anyone who's truly seeking after you and seeking your heart Teach them to confess their sin and repent while there's time and you may be found. Because ultimately, restoration is possible. Ultimately, restoration is what God desires. Ultimately, restoration is what repentance brings. 
fellowship that was broken with God. That, that removing of His working in our life is restored. And we can again begin to accomplish the things that He created us to accomplish for Him and His kingdom. What's in your life today you haven't really repented of? You said, oh God, I'm sorry. God, I don't want the consequences. God, don't let anything bad happen. God, don't let people find out. God, I really want to change because I don't want people to think that I'm this way or think this about me. But you've never yet really said, God, I've sinned against you and you alone. I need your forgiveness. I need you to cleanse me. I need you to restore me. I need you to use me. Today, you need to do business with God. Like David said, we need to pray while he's there to hear. We need to pray while we have time. We need to make things right. Don't hesitate on that today. God, thank you for this time together. Thank you for this opportunity to get into your word. God, thank you for